This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So, good evening. And thank you uh, for inviting me, uh, for encouraging Shyla to invite me. Uh, it's interesting, I'm, I'm looking back at the quilt, and there's only one word that I can read from here, and it's joy. <laughs> it's like, whoa, okay, we're, we're in the right place here. So, um, you know, it's, it's always a little odd to be asked to speak about something months in advance because that's assuming that that's kind of where you are in your practice at the moment that you're giving the talk. And as it happens, it's not been a real joyous time in my life in the last couple of weeks, except that I've still managed to figure out the joy that's in the middle of difficulty, which is really kind of what I wanted to talk about tonight. So, you know, Buddhism uh, actually has several teachings about joy. And uh, the seven factors of awakening is only one of them. Uh, and that's the series that you're doing. But I'm going to be bringing in information that comes from other practices as well about joy. Because when uh, Shyla put the word out that she was doing this series, uh, that was the one I immediately said, well, I'll do it if I can do that one. <laughs> because to me, uh, love and joy are the two most important qualities that we can cultivate at any time, in any practice. Uh, it's, it's the core of being a human. And the mistake that we might make, though, is confusing the word happiness with joy. And they're not quite the same thing. It is actually sometimes possible to have joy in the midst of really terrible difficulties, but it's often very hard to feel happy about them. And so it's always a hard thing when you're at the grocery store and you're going through the line and the person who's checking you out says, so, how are you today? And you've just had the most awful thing happen. I mean, what are you supposed to say? Oh, I'm great. Instead of, actually, it's the worst day of my life, which you're probably not going to say either. So the fact is that joy is a little different. And I want to make that caveat tonight because actually, in a way, I'm going to be talking about joy in the midst of difficulty as well as when things are going right. So there's a, uh, a Japanese Zen teacher, and this is what he wrote. It's a fairy tale to think that once we have attained deep faith or have had some great enlightenment experience, our whole life will be one joyous delight after another, and all sadness will be swept away so that we can, all we see is paradise. Living a life of true reality experiencing an ongoing restlessness with alternate moments of joy and sadness. 
There has to be a settling into one's life in a much deeper place where you face whatever comes up. True religious teaching has to be able to show us how we can swim through one wave at a time. That is, waves of laughter, tears, prosperity, adversity. Studying and practicing the Buddha Dharma is neither a kind of academic exercise to be carried out only after your livelihood has been secured, nor some sort of meditation performed only when circumstances are favorable. In other words, we can't put off practicing and experiencing joy until everything is just as we want it to be. We actually have to find joy in the midst of every moment. So in the seven factors of awakening, uh, we, we understand that these are considered to be uh, so important in Buddhist practice that they're actually sometimes referred to as inner wealth, these, these mental capacities that we're talking about. And as you know, the factors are um, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And like the precepts, we don't practice them in an order, right? They all sort of are coming up at all the same time and in different combinations. But it does seem like the first three of mindfulness, investigation, and energy tend to allow the arising of joy. So mindfulness, we understand, leads all the other factors and makes it possible for all the rest of them to arise. If we're not mindful of our daily breathing, of our daily experience of this moment, it's pretty hard to see these other things. It's hard to learn how to concentrate. It's hard to feel tranquility. But then there's investigation. Now, I love this because it's encouraging us to be curious about our life. So when the kids at my school say to me something to the effect of, oh, I'm so bored, um, my response is often, great. Now go out and figure out what to do about it. There is actually nothing to be bored about. Our life is so very full, moment to moment. So investigation implies meeting each moment and looking at it not turning away from it, not denying it. You might not like it. There's plenty of moments that I don't like. But even in the middle of that, there is something to understand. But then we have to make effort. This is always where I lose students. You know, it's kind of like, we would like it to be easy. We would like, as as which Yama Roshi just said, we would like to be able to have this great enlightenment experience and then, wonderful, everything's going to be great now. And it doesn't work that way. So in fact, uh, you know, in January, I celebrated my 30th year as a monk. And when I realized it was my 30th year, just as a monk, that's not counting the years before that, I was kind of appalled. I was like, whoa, what'd you do in that 30 years? Ack! 
What have you actually learned? You know, have you increased your wisdom? Have you increased your compassion? I mean, I hope so, but, you know, there's that famous saying at the end of the sutra, don't waste time. And I'm sure I've wasted some time because I decided that I didn't want to be curious or I decided that I didn't want to deal with something or I turned away, whatever. Because all of those things require effort. You know, it's, it's not enough to want it. You have to work at it. So the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist and he said it is one of the very first questions. He works with young adults, especially boys. And he said one of his first questions is, so, you know, you've just told me sort of what's going on for you. Um, do you really want to not have to feel that way anymore? And they usually say, yeah. Well, so if you really don't want to feel that way anymore, I mean, there are things I can tell you and we can work on, but you'd really have to work hard for, to, for that to happen. Are you really willing to do that? And he says, nine times out of ten, they say, yeah, because they're in a lot of pain. And it's the same thing here. Pretty much when we come to meditation practice, partly it's because we're curious. Maybe somebody told us about it. Maybe we've met somebody who is an example of some of the qualities that we ourselves would like to have. But a lot of times it's because we're suffering. And believe me, I just, I couldn't believe it. I had a student the other day in a discussion say that there were just some people who never suffered. They led, they led charmed lives. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I, I absolutely and fundamentally disagree with that statement. There isn't a person I know who hasn't suffered in some way. And it may look to you like someone has a charmed life, but the moment I sit down with these people and start having that private interview that teachers do with students, oh, it's amazing what you find out. It only looks that way on the outside, and that's partly because we are all so worried about how we look to other people. So don't let that fool you. But also, be encouraged. Because if you're sitting here, it's because you were willing to make the effort. And all three of those things, mindfulness practice, investigation, and effort, lead to, ultimately, joy, and I would also say, gratitude. So, joy, as I've said, is not happiness. It is the finding of joy in every activity, not just the ones you like. So, finding the joy in bad health. Okay, show of hands, how many of you have had the dreaded cold or flu in the last month? Well, that's pretty good. You guys are healthy. My entire school, it went through, there are, three, there are at least three people just in my administration alone who've had three separate things all in a row. How do we stay with illness? Because as soon as you realize you're getting ill, 
Isn't the first part of you going, oh no, I don't want to get sick. I can't afford to get sick. I have too much to do, right? Finding joy in the midst of ill health, that's, or injury. Or, Gil Fransdahl once wrote a little, little paper on the seven factors of awakening where he used driving as the, um, the lens. And finding joy in your driving. Now, if you're 15, you're finding joy in driving because you've never done it before. And you don't have to wait for mom and dad to take you someplace anymore. It's really incredible. You've got this machine and you get to go out and drive around. But by the time you're my age, it's just a thing to get you from point A to point B and you'd really like it if there weren't all those other people in front of you. How do you find the joy in that? How do you remember that this person who's just behaved badly on the freeway may be on their way to the emergency room with a sick child rather than just what you usually think is they're being a jerk. Something like finding joy in washing the dishes. This is the, I love the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh for this reason because for him everything becomes this opportunity of mindfulness and that when you become truly mindful of what you're doing you experience the joy of it. So if you're in the kitchen and you're just rushing through the dishes in order to get to the next thing whatever that thing is you're not actually experiencing the joy of washing dishes. And as he says what could be better? You have warm water and soap and you have the satisfaction of taking something dirty and making it clean. (laughs) But how many of us actually do that? Most of us are rushing through it because we've got other things we need to do. So the problem is then we're not here with the dishes and probably we're not with the thing that we're rushing through to get through. We're never actually here. And here is where joy is. So it's actually joy, a perfectly reasonable and desirable thing to feel and want in your practice. And I say this because sometimes I I feel this about myself that to be the um, incredibly sort of optimistic person that I am um, and and joyous and talking about love and happiness and joy and all those things which I tend to talk about, uh, I often know that I'm probably not being taken very seriously because we want someone with gravitas (laughs) and joy doesn't seem so serious but wow if you're not finding joy here in your practice go find another practice those people next door they are enjoying themselves and I just want to point out they're working on addiction and whatever you feel every time they clap and applaud in my own heart what I'm thinking I am so glad they have something to laugh about and something to applaud because working with addiction is hard work. If you don't find joy sitting down and emptying your mind a little bit and just relaxing into your body you need a different practice. (laughs) For me 
when I start feel, stop feeling joyous in my life, it's because I've missed my meditation. I know immediately. You know, if there's a day when I have to get to school really early, and that means I have to leave my house really early, and I miss my meditation in the morning, I know it. I'm not as joyful a person during the day. When difficulty arises, I don't meet it with quite the same feeling. Joy, in some sense, represents positive thinking. But it's really about kind of being excited. It's about curiosity again. So if you feel a little joy in meditation or in reciting some kind of sutra or doing the dishes, well, that means that the factor, one of these factors of awakening, the one of joy, is now present. So this is an interesting quote that I I wrote down a long time ago, so unfortunately I don't have the provenance of it, but it said, we aren't practicing Buddhism because we think we are supposed to, but to transform ourselves, to transform our suffering, and to bring some contentment to our lives. And that is something to be excited about. You are transforming your lives, moment by moment. And it seems like, well, maybe this is the only meditation you do once a week. Or maybe you do it once a day, or maybe you do it twice a week, something. But that is transformation in action. And every time you sit down, all of these factors arise of their own accord, I might add. Joy and gratitude arise. And you take that out into the world. So not only are you transforming yourself, but you transform your entire environment. And again, that's something to be pretty excited about. So in Zen practice, there is another mention of joy. Uh, It's called the Three Minds. And uh, this was written by uh, Zen master Dogen, who was... Uh, He only lived for 50 years, and he wrote something like 27 volumes of information. (laughs) And then he said that there was no point in reading and writing anything about Zen practice. Go figure. Anyway, he recommended that a person working to benefit their family or community should maintain three mental attitudes, the three minds, magnanimous mind, nurturing mind, and joyful mind. Joyful mind is what comes from deep in our hearts. And it happens even in the middle of difficulty. It arises from the insight in your meditation that we live together with all beings and are not separate. This is what in Buddhism we call emptiness. Empty of a separate, abiding self. There is no such thing. You exist because everything else exists. You cannot separate yourself out. The very air you breathe is being breathed by everyone else. There is no such thing as a separate you. There is a you in the relative sense, 
that gets in your car and drives away tonight. But there is also, in the absolute sense, the you that is completely interconnected with all other yous. And so joyful mind comes out of that place of understanding your connection. So another Zen teacher, Morinaga Roshi, said, the Zen school sets up its practice so that you can attain enlightenment by looking intently into your own heart. If that heart were really yours alone, no matter how intently you continued to gaze at it, you could never awaken to universal truth. (laughs) But the heart is not an individual possession. It is not yours alone. The heart, the life that is within you, is born in companionship with the environment of all sentient beings. We're not talking about the beating heart inside of your physical body. We're talking about that heart-mind that we all know we have. So when we look into our heart, if we believe that it's ours alone, we may be able to see our own small mind clearly, but we are never going to understand the universal truth of interconnection. When we begin to understand that interconnection, however, then we can begin to understand that the heart is not ours. It's in relation to everything. Everything is in relation to everything else. So that even in the midst of difficulty, our connectedness can give us hope and then joy because the hope, the hope is that I am connected, that I am not alone in the midst of my difficulty, that I am the only one who does not lead a charmed life, (laughs) that everyone else seems to have an easy life except for me. What a lonely position to be in. So as I say, it's always dangerous to agree to talk about a topic long before you're actually going to talk about it. Because three weeks ago, joy was an easy thing for me to think about. But two weeks ago, overnight, my dog, who is like my little child, developed an immune disease and almost died. It was a shock. He's only six, so he's at the prime of his life. But I watched my beautiful, vigorous, alert, loving dog just start to fade away. And by the time we took him to the hospital, he was close to death because it turned out that he has one of these uh, hemoglobin immune problems where your immune system is actually destroying your own red blood cells. And only through a series of transfusions and major steroids and intravenous and being in the hospital for five days finally turned it around. But on that Wednesday night, my husband and I went home and cried in each other's arms because we thought that the next day we were bringing our dog home to die. Now, you may think, oh, well, it's just a dog. (laughs) 
unless you have a dog. I know you don't think that if you have dogs. <laughs> but if you don't have a dog, I'm sure that that might be coming up for you. Uh, but it turns out that um, Rhodesians, in particular, uh, are so intelligent that it's like having a three-year-old. They can't talk to you, but they can do everything but that. And this dog, even, even by other standards, is fairly unusual. Goes to school with me, has become like the school mascot. Everybody loves this dog. So not only was I going to lose it, but there are kids in my school that have grown up with this dog. So imagine, here I am at the hospital. I have a dog that no matter what I put in front of him, cat food, he looks at it and he turns away. This is not my dog. This is when I realize something is really seriously wrong. We're in the waiting area. And this other woman walks up. And she says, oh my goodness, what a beautiful dog. What's the problem? And we say, we don't know yet. We only know that it's something really serious. And she says, almost in passing, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm here because we're going to have to say goodbye to mine. And then she starts to walk away. And, and my husband and I, it took us a second, and we're like, oh, we're so sorry. So here she is expressing her delight in our dog when she's on her way back into a room to say goodbye to her own. Twenty minutes later, she comes back out. She's been crying. Her husband's been crying. Her mother and father are with them. And this is an older woman, so her parents are quite old. They're all crying. She must have gone out to the car or something, and then she came back in. And she walked over to me, and she said, I hope your dog is going to be okay. He's beautiful. This is sympathetic joy. I don't know what else to call it. That someone who's just lost their dog could come to me and say that. It made me start crying. I hadn't started crying yet. But that she did that meant so much to me. That she had set aside, in a sense, her own grief, or at least understood mine, enough that she could wish me well, she could wish my dog well. This was astonishing. And it was really the first time that I did cry and began to think of how serious this might be. Me, could be me in a few days coming out of that room. I didn't know. So I think a lot about someone like the Dalai Lama. This is a man who had to leave his country forever, who has had to be in exile and set up his whole religious as well as state practice. He's, he's up until recently was the head both of Tibet and of the religion. And yet, this is the person who can wish the Chinese well. It's astonishing, but it's hopeful. Because what it means is it's possible. It's possible to feel joy not only for myself, 
but for others in difficult situations. Because what I came away with last week when it turned out that my dog made it through the night finally on his own, and that his red blood cells started to produce and that the steroids were strong enough to suppress the immune reaction. First of all, I cannot tell you the amount of love that poured out of my sangha and my school for this dog. People were leaving letters and flowers on my desk for him, writing emails, sending texts, how's he doing? But more than that, what I realized, the joy for me, came out of realizing I never wish terrible things on anybody. Let's face it, suffering sucks big time. Nobody wants to suffer. But can you be in the middle of your suffering and find the joy? And so the joy that I found was I realized that in the middle of my fear and upset that I was going to lose this dear friend, I mean, he really is my daily companion, that what was growing in me was compassion for the suffering of others. And very specifically, what I thought of was years ago, being involved with someone who has come here occasionally, whose daughter died of a brain tumor. And she was a member of my school, a student. It was the first time I did hospice work. And I thought about this again because on the third day that I went to visit my dog at the hospital, he was aware enough to realize that I was leaving. When he realized I was not coming out of the room with him, he stopped dead and looked at me as if to say, "What? you can't go. And then I said, okay, honey, I'll walk you down the hall until we get to the double doors of the hospital. And we got to the double doors and they opened him and again, he realized I wasn't going with him and he looked at me again please don't leave me. Oh, it broke my heart. Because you can't talk to a dog and tell them, you're going to be okay. There are people here who are going to take care of you and I will return. But at the time that I was doing this work with this little girl who was 12, they didn't have beds in the room for the parents. You could sleep down the hall. I can't imagine what it felt like to have to walk out at night and leave your child. So what I came away with here was the joy of, oh my goodness, I have learned something here, something so valuable, something that's going to allow me to put myself in someone else's shoes a little better. I've never lost a child. I don't know what that feels like, but Maybe this is going to give me a tiny bit more information. Because this is the thing about sympathetic joy and compassion. It is so hard for us to imagine what other people are going through. To the point that we can believe other people leave charmed lives and nothing ever happens to them 
that everything good happens to them. Don't believe it. It is not so. Everybody suffers in some way. It is the nature of being human. You have a body, and as long as you have a body, you will get sick, you will have pain, you will grow old, hopefully, (laughs) and then you will die, and you don't get any choice. I have a mother who has now been alive for two years in a state of paralysis. She would like to die. She prays every night to God to let her let her go in her sleep. There is no easy way for her to die. But she has shown me also she is taking her joy where she can find it. The small things talking to her children, getting to see pictures of her great-grandchildren. She's trying to find ways to find joy in the midst of that. So what gets in the way of our joyful expression and experience? Well, a more modern Zen teacher once said, is it all right to be mortal? Is it all right to be homely? (laughs) Is it all right to be weak in math or grammar? Is it all right to be deaf to good music or blind to good art? Is it all right to be neurotic? Is it all right for others to have such egregious faults? I mean, really all right. To the very bottom? Well, if so, congratulations. I suspect, rather, that no one can answer in the affirmative and rightfully claim such broad, serene acceptance of self and others. The abode of equanimity stands vacant. Nobody lives there, though some live right next door. The suggestion that you simply be joyous or compassionate or peaceful is kind of naive and not particularly helpful. But there are practices that we can do to increase the possibility of this experience. First of all, you might decide that you really need some therapy. That would help you clear out some of the old stuff. Maybe you suffer from serious self-doubt or obsessive jealousy or any number of neurotic things. So that's one practice you can do in combination with your meditation. In meditation itself, there are exercises in expressing sympathetic joy. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have this thing, Tonglen, where you actually take on someone else's illness. You don't take it on in a resentful way. (laughs) You don't say, oh, all right, fine. You take it on with joy. You take it on with sincerity. So when things happen in my sangha with people, or even at school, I usually, I write to my sangha and say, would you please offer your bows and prayers for this person, for this reason, or for that person? I firmly believe it has an effect. We have more effect in the universe than we realize. 
And it may sound kind of airy-fairy, but all I can say is it's happened. But sometimes it is enough to practice the way of joy, in this case, as if you were joyous. To practice sympathetic joy as if you were feeling sympathetic joy, even if you don't feel that way. Now this may seem kind of contrived, or it might feel kind of forced, like, I will feel joy. That's not going to work. <laughs> so you may have to work with your fundamental belief that you have no reason for joy. That may be a place to start. Or, as my student said, you may have to work with the fundamental belief that everybody else has a charmed life except for you. Get to the bottom of that. It's kind of like, um, I'm, maybe you're familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh's half-smile idea. Okay, so he says that uh, no matter how you're feeling, you should try to cultivate at least like a Mona Lisa half-smile. And this is because your body is connected to your mind. And if you have hunched shoulders like this, generally that means you're not feeling so good. Or if you're sitting with your head in your hand, or if you have a frown on your face. Well, he figured out a long time ago that one way to work with it is to actually change your physical nature like having the lips go up a little bit, sitting with a straight back, having the hands in a stable position. This is an exercise to try sometime when you're home. Take your sitting position wherever you are and start out like this. After about 10 minutes of doing that, Bring yourself back up into a straight position with a slight smile on your face and your hands in a stable place. And see if you too notice the difference. It's pretty extraordinary. The body and the mind are absolutely connected. What one is doing, the other understands. So you can change your attitude and that affects your body or you can change your body and that affects your attitude. So one way to work with experiencing joy if you're not feeling very joyous is to actually change your body. Have a joyous body. And regard all those methods that I just named as needs that have as much importance to you as food and water and rest and exercise. Joy is going to feed your mind and body just as much as food and rest. You know this. You know that when you feel joy, there's an energy that goes with that. So Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center, once said that the world is its own magic. And he wasn't making this up out of whole cloth. He was referring back to lots of other teachers who had come before, including that guy Zen Master Dogen. 
Dogen wrote a very famous treatise called the Genjo Koan. And basically, in English, what it means is ordinary profundity of the present moment becoming the present moment. Ordinary profundity. Every moment is profound and it is very ordinary. Your life may seem very ordinary, but actually every moment is kind of profound. First of all, you're alive. It could be the opposite, right? The very fact that you're alive means you have another moment in which to experience this profundity. In another sutra, Dogen wrote, the meditation I speak of is not meditation practice. It is simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease. The practice realization of totally culminated enlightenment. In other words, totally culminated life enlightenment is joyful ease. Think about this for a minute. How would it feel to be in a state at all times of joyful ease. That is the state of enlightenment. That is it right there. And it is not dependent on circumstances. It is a continuity that runs through our life. These teachers are all pointing to one thing and one thing only. Whether it's the seven factors of awakening, joyful mind, the Brahma Viharas mentioned joy, doesn't really matter. They are all pointing to the extraordinary nature of our everyday life. The beauty and the joy of the present moment tends to get missed because we're always rushing to the next thing. So I'm not enjoying washing the dishes because I'm thinking of something I need to do to get ready for tomorrow rather than just doing that. When was the last time you remember feeling joyful ease? Was it in your meditation? Or was your mind troubled? Or busy? Or planning? Or worried? Were you getting annoyed by the noise over there or wondering when they were going to stop or when we were going to stop? Is it when you wake up in the morning? Is it when you go to bed at night? Is it when you look in your child's face, smiling? Is it when your dog comes and gives you a big lick, the first one he's given you in a week because he's finally well enough to do so? Can we actually experience joy in just this moment? Right here, right now. Even when it's difficult. That is the core of our practice. That is what we're doing here. That is actually the transformation. I wish joy to all of you and thank you again for inviting me.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.